Welcome to Choosing Leadership and this is another episode of the Visionary Voices series with your host Sumit Gupta. In this dynamic new series of episodes, I am bringing you thought-provoking conversations with visionary leaders who have reshaped industries, challenged norms and carved their own paths to success. In a world where leadership is a blend of art and science, where the ability to navigate uncertainty is as important as fostering innovation, we are diving headfirst into the minds of those who have mastered this craft. Join us as we discover the nuances of decision making and unveil the uncharted territories of visionary leadership. Get ready to choose leadership not just as a role, but as a conscious journey of growth, transformation and influence. In the interview, Tina and Neil, co-authors of the E-Suite, Empathetic Leadership for the Next Generation of Leaders, emphasize the vital role of empathy in effective leadership. They highlight that businesses fundamentally involve people, which is often overlooked in leadership positions when we are focused on short-term results. Empathetic leadership is not only about being kind, but also involves contextual decision-making and courage. And in a remote work era, empathy's significance remains vital, demanding deliberate communication and adaptive communication styles from all of us. Hello and welcome to this episode of Choosing Leadership. This is a special episode with Tina Kuhn and Neil Frick, the co-authors of The E-Suite, a book about empathy and leadership. So welcome, Neil. Welcome, Tina. And before Hi. we... Yeah. And Thank uh, you for having us. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. As we start, maybe we can start with Tina. Can you share a bit of the context behind this book? So Neil and I were working together at a company in their leadership. And as we worked together, we realized we both had different styles, but they were compatible styles. And as we started talking about our leadership and how we work together, the empathy came up. And then it just evolved into us writing this book about empathetic leadership. Wonderful. Can you elaborate more on that? What do you mean when you say empathetic leadership? So empathy, to me, is looking at the big picture. It's not just being sympathetic. It's not being compassionate. It's looking at the big picture, looking at how, how it all fits together, listening to the other person. It's working at a level that helps both the businesses and the people communicate together. Thank you for sharing that. And I love that aspect of looking at the big picture, right? And I think that's very important because in the end, every business, every leadership team, I think is there to do something bigger rather than just the key people involved. So Neil, maybe you can elaborate on that, right? From an organizational point of view, how do you see empathy play a role in the day-to-day -day stuff? It's life can get too busy or too complicated with quarterly reportings or with other kinds of pressures which any CEO or which any leader has to handle. Certainly. Businesses at its core is all about people, right? When you are dealing with customers, dealing with employees, dealing with coworkers, you're dealing with human beings. And it's very easy in leadership position to 
ignore that and look at the bottom line, look at the hard facts, but everything comes with context. And empathy allows you to understand, as Tina said, the larger context of an individual's actions. You may see someone who is struggling uh, and they're struggling for reasons beyond just a choice to perform poorly. Most people want to be successful. Most people want to give their all. And empathy first leadership allows you to take a step back, understand their perspective, understand where they're coming from, and then adjust your management and leadership style to best support them. You know, at the end of the day, we manage people differently depending on what works best for them. And empathetic leadership from that perspective can really help you day to day make decisions that support your team, support your customer, and ultimately support your bottom line. Absolutely. And I love how you include the bottom line, right? Because empathy, trust, relationships, all of these elements sometimes can feel very intangible. And this is something which you address at the beginning of your book also, right? So the return on investment or what is the return on empathy? So maybe can you relate a bit more on on that? How do you measure it? How do you see its impact on the bottom line and to productivity? Certainly. So actually the uh, the working title of the book for a long time was the ROI of empathy because that was Tina and I are empathetic people, but we're also business leaders and we're also trying to make a profit for our stakeholders. So how do you, how do you draw a direct correlation? And I think the way that you can measure empathy in an organization is very similar to how you measure productivity, right? You look at how your team is performing in the same way that you look at how morale within an organization is, is evolving evolving and your culture. With customers, right, it's about a direct correlation if you're in a sales role between your sales numbers and how much you understand your customers. There's a chapter in the book that talks about sales and marketing and you with the right understanding of what your customer needs and not what your product does, but what your customer is looking for, you can start to craft marketing campaigns, sales campaigns that increase your direct numbers. And that's, it's empathy in and of itself is immeasurable, right? It's not something that can be quantified, but the results when you are shifting from a more authoritarian or a more customer-first model to a more people-first model, it's all in those relationships that you're building that you can then start to see an increase in sales numbers or sweat equity from your employees. It becomes apparent as you start to look at the results of the changes that you're making. Yeah, yeah. And can either of you share how you got into like practicing this kind of leadership? Was that a gradual journey or was that a result of, let's say, growth being stuck at a level or some kind of like a setback which led you towards that path? So it was an interesting journey for both of us. As we worked together and as our styles were, as I mentioned before, our styles were not the same we actually started having weekly talks about how our leadership and our styles. And I learned that Neil's style was very good for me. Give me, let me give you an example. I tend to make decisions very quickly and move fast. And Neil tends to be more thoughtful and think through issues. So I pushed him to make decisions faster, but he pushed me to look at the look at the bigger picture, take some breaths and really make the best decisions. So between us, we really balance each other out. But in those discussions, they moved from how do we work together most effectively to 
empathy and how we bring empathy to the whole entire organization. Yeah, yeah. And I want to add on that, right? Since the leadership styles of people can be so different, what do you see becomes the key role or the key skill for a CEO to have to gel together with their team, right? To create a team of leaders rather than just to be the one leader. And with many people, how can you make a team which complements each other? And then what role does empathy play into that process? So I would say it all comes down to trust. You have to have a leadership team that trust each other because that's how you're going to, that's how your team is going to pull together the whole entire company is when there's, there's trust between the leadership and between the leadership and the workers. So the question is, how do you get that? How do you get that trust? It's an elusive thing sometimes. And it's really, it comes down to the communication and being, listening to each other recognizing other people's points of views have a point. Let me tell you a story one time. I had a person I I worked with that was always angry. And as I really dug into it, that anger was based on fear. And I had to work out what their base fear was to stop that anger, to work out the anger. But once that fear was worked out and I understood why that person was what they were afraid of and got their trust that I would take care of them and listen to them and their fear wasn't going to happen, then it's trust is like this thing that builds up time over time based on you doing what you say you're going to do and listening to that person and putting together a solution that works for everyone. Yes, yes. I think that's a wonderful example. And in your book, you also mentioned that empathetic leadership starts with you. And you have a section called Knowing Yourself. And this is what you are actually talking about, right, in an interpersonal relationship. And can you elaborate with both of you, right? What have you learned about yourself as you have grown over a period of time to be more effective leaders? What have you learned about yourself? And then how has that translated to helping other people become more self-aware about themselves? Sure. I think I have learned that I'm a very anxious person. Tina mentions sort of anger from fear, right? So in identifying where your response to negativity or where your kind of pain points are, you start to do the work of healing yourself and understanding what your trigger points are. So for me, change generates anxiety. And I I have a tendency to react to that anxiety and lead with anxiety. I should say I had a tendency to. Over the years, I have learned skills that have mitigated those issues. And talking about it is one of the biggest things. So I, I, a lot of leaders don't talk about the intangible challenges of being on that island by yourself, making these decisions. It's very, the common phrase, it's lonely at the top is true. There aren't a lot of people that you can rely on your team and you certainly can't share that anxiety and that pressure with your team members, right? That's not fair to them. And they're looking to you to make these complicated decisions. So once you've started to identify, for me, it's, very specific kinds of change. It's also not knowing situations. Then you're able to communicate with your team. Hey, these are the things I need from you so that I can feel comfortable and then have that conversation 
you know, and with reciprocity, what do you need from me so that we can start to alleviate those issues that you are having? And once you've got that confidence in yourself to know, okay, the feeling that I am feeling right now is because X is happening. Now I can do Y to offset. And then you can help your team do the same by leading them and helping being honest and transparent about your issues or your challenges so that they feel comfortable being honest and transparent about theirs. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I would like to ask both of you, before being able to have that kind of a communication, what inner work or very personal or private stuff that you have to do to deal and then process with that anxiety and what it might be hiding behind fear, stress, or anything else? Therapy helps, but that's not necessarily for everyone. I think it has to do with introspection, right? You've got to look inward and you have to listen to people, right? So Tina was talking about how she and I, our relationship evolved in that she was quicker to make decisions. I was a little bit more reticent and you have to listen to the a person that you trust when they're telling you something, when they're telling you, hey, I'm noticing this pattern of behavior, I'm noticing this issue, or this is causing me a challenge. And then you have to be humble enough to say, okay, I got to work on that. You have to be willing to change. And that comes from a place of, like I said, introspection. You've got to be able to look inward and identify areas where you can make real change in your own life. And that's a tough thing to do, especially for people who have been in positions of power for a long time. It's hard to take constructive criticism sometimes, uh, but the reality is that none of us are perfect and all of us have the opportunity to grow and expand. And that's the core of where that journey begins. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Yeah. Can I just foot stomp what Neil said Sure. about the growth? Leaders, to be an effective leader, you must continue to grow and learn. And to stop listening to others just means you, in my opinion, you just become a less effective leader. You narrow your viewpoint and you don't take in others' input and your decisions just become worse or a higher risk. For me, I had this, and actually Neil, we did this as well. Early in my career, I had a gentleman that I worked with and every Friday we would do a little retrospective about what we did well, what didn't work well. We were on this high pressure contract. And that retrospective with somebody that I trusted was critical for me to continue to grow. And then when Neil and I worked together, we did that for each other as well. We were able to really talk about what worked. And he, he told me things that I didn't do well. And it was hard to hear. And it was hard to take that in. So I would go back, lick my wounds for a, a day or two, and then decide to change. So that constant recognition that you need to grow and learn and change and listen to others is the way that I've been able to grow in my leadership. And without that, I just think you get stagnant and you end up stuck in where you are and not able to grow into the leader that you could be. Yeah. And I just want to add to that. You have to be careful about the team that you create, right? You have to, it's why diversity 
and inclusion and equity is so important because if you don't have diverse viewpoints on your kind of small council, your team of trusted advisors, you could end up with people who are just validating your bad decisions, either because they are afraid to upset you or because they gain some kind of a benefit from staying in your quote unquote good graces. I think what Tina and I were able to accomplish was a trust that was born of our differences. And both of us have integrity and delivered on what we said we would do, but weren't willing to compromise and say, oh, you know what? Yeah, that bad decision you made, I co-sign it. We were willing and brave enough to have the conversation of, hey, this is something that's not great that needs to change. And in the same way that I challenged her, she challenged me, we made each other better leaders. And, and I think that is so critical. And you can see it in, in certain individuals who have clearly been surrounded by like-minded, similar thinking, yes, people their entire lives because they just don't have a good sense of the way that business works anymore. And they certainly don't have any capacity for growth. So that's why diversity of thought is so important. And it really challenges you to see different perspectives. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, both of you, I think, for sharing that. First of all, because it is personal and so difficult to share sometimes. And it takes courage, right? Many times people see empathy as something soft or weak, but it takes courage to, to share that it hit my ego or I have to like swallow my own truth and then work with it and to share that. So I want to acknowledge that now, like the flip side of it, many times people see this as touchy-feely or soft, and it's not that. So can you share a little bit more about like the difficult parts of business, like holding somebody accountable, having a tough conversation, dealing with conflict, where does empathy play a role? And especially address this misconception that maybe empathy is not about simply being nice and kind, right? It's more than that. It's courageous. So can you elaborate more on that? I'll just start about confrontation. There is a section in the book about confrontation and empathetic confrontation. And confrontation is all about solving a problem, listening to the other person, figuring out how to solve a problem. And so much confrontation is about, I see it's about ego. And as a leader, you really have to remove your ego from it and not say, I have to be right in this and to come at the problem from a way, a point of view that we have to solve this problem so that it's good for everyone, including the business. And I think people's egos get in the way. And I, empathy is getting rid of your ego and looking at the decision and how you communicate in a way that everyone can hear it, not just a way that makes you look better. Yeah, I think the, as Tina said, at the end of the day, usually when you're interacting with somebody in the confrontational way or a, you have to hold somebody accountable, you're both trying to work towards the same goal, which is success for the organization and success for the individual. And empathy allows you to look at the situation holistically with context and make decisions that, and give you a kind of an insight into how best to approach the situation with an individual. But to, to your point, there are misapplications of empathy. And that is why people 
get this impression that empathy is soft or it's basically just being too nice. And I'll share a personal story. As a manager over the years, my biggest challenges have been in making the hard decisions around terminating an employee because of performance, because my empathetic approach lends me to know all of this information about what's going on in their personal life, right? A family member passed away. They've got really tough financial situations. And as a human being and a deeply feeling human being, that can be really challenging to make the decision that's in the best interest of the organization. But the proper application of empathy is looking at not only that individual situation, but everyone within the organization. So if you've got someone who is underperforming and they are causing problems within in the org, you have to make a decision. The most empathetic decision would be to solve the problem, fix the issue, and not defer to someone's personal issues or people that you sympathize with because that is impacting not only the organization, but all of the other people. And I've gotten, I think, more selective in how I apply empathy as my career has progressed and made some large organizational changes that 10 years ago I wouldn't have been comfortable with because of that personal aspect. So there is a there is a limit to empathy and it goes beyond personal empathy. You have to start to look at, as Tina said earlier, the big picture and making decisions in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And as we speak about decisions, can you share one or two tough decisions that you had to make? which were primarily driven by being empathetic, right? And where you maybe did something which was outside of the conventional norm of doing things. So I can share one that sort of started and rooted in that misapplication of empathy. So I had a, an individual who worked for me who was very successful for a number of years and went through some personal struggles and the organization made some changes and the success that this person had previously dissipated, right? And it took me a long time to make a curative decision because of the personal relationship that I had with this individual. And what I had to do was take a step back from kind of the, the emotional piece of it and look at from an empathetic standpoint, am I doing the right thing for this person by allowing them to continue to behave in this way? Am I doing the right thing for the other individuals on the team? And it, it wasn't a cut and dry decision, but it gave me the perspective I needed to be able to make those curative changes. And that I think is the core of empathetic leadership is looking at the whole situation with context, because there've also been situations where someone's been underperforming and through having conversations with them about their situation and their needs, you come to identify that with a little bit more flexibility or a different tool or a different manager, they can actually be incredibly successful. And then for as many people as you, you're able to save and grow through, through approaching it in that way. Yeah. Thank you. One thing which I would like to ask both of you, right, is how has empathy seeped into the rest of your organization? This is also very related to my work, which I have found is that any kind of leadership intervention always works best if you are like addressing it from the top. You also mentioned it in your book. So can you share maybe two, three, four levels down? How does your organization uh, has become empathetic and what has that created and is, was that expected or was there were there also any surprises there for you that's that's an interesting question so i would say for me applying empathy from the top 
it does filter down in the organization and it filters down as as listening and as trust and as pulling together there there was a study done of about 900 employees and 80% of them said that they would work longer hours with an empathetic boss. So that's what we all want. We want our employees to not necessarily work longer hours, but to be focused, to really be productive and want to be at work and do the work and be part of the team. The same study also said that people with an empathetic boss are more innovative because they feel like they can bring additional innovations or new ideas and not be shot down and they'll be listened to. So it's all wrapped around that trust, listening, being part of a team, knowing that you're going to be heard. And part of the communication downward, when I say listening, it's both listening to their point of view. And even when it's not the decision that you make, you may get feedback and you're like, oh no, we're not doing that. But to be able to communicate back to that person why you're not going to do it that way and the business reasons why you're not going to do it that way is really important to make sure that to keep that trust. Because even if you don't listen to them, if they know why, then they get why the decision was being made. You stop all that chatter and disgruntledness that you have when you don't communicate. So I think that communication downward and then the communication back up just reinforces trust all the way through the organization. And then you get that this empathetic, trustworthy group of people that work hard and you get high productivity out of. Yeah, I agree. I've seen, I think as part of that, as you start to to lead empathetically and your team starts to adopt it, you move into a servant leadership model. You start to see as managers, as leaders, you start to see your role and your team starts to see their role as empowering the people that work for them. And in listening to their what they they need and then communicating as tina said you build that trust and then you it's almost like you create it's like the old model when i remember my father said this to me really young that my job was to make my boss look good right that was an employee's role was to make your boss's job easier and that's not really the way that you know the businesses operate anymore people are much more empowered but by doing a, um, a kind of leading empathetically and pushing your team to think about the whole context of how their employees are interacting and pushing them to lead empathetically as well. You create this model where you're supporting your leadership, who is supporting your managers, who are supporting the folks that are at the front line. And it just makes your organization more streamlined, more trustworthy. And ultimately your customers see that because they see the support that your frontline employees are getting. Yeah, thank you for adding that. Uh, one additional perspective, what I would like to get from both of you since, since being a female leader and now Neil being like a male leader, does that make a difference or does that make empathetic listening or any empathetic skill easier or harder, either on like while working with yourself or while working with a male or female leader on the other side? Yeah, it's interesting. To, to be honest, I don't really think much about being female or not female on my day to day. 
it's not something that's in the top of my mind, but I do think it has affected me because there have been times where many times, especially younger in my career, where I was the manager and I would walk into a meeting and they would all address the people that were beneath me, but they were men. And I had to, that proverbial seat at the table. I had to be a little more aggressive. That word has a bad connotation, but I had to work hard to make sure that people were listening to me instead of other people, because they tend to ask the questions to the male instead of the female at the table. I think that is changing a lot in the workforce now, which is fabulous. I think it's a far more diverse workforce. And I think, I don't think it's as big a deal to have a female boss as it was when I first started working, but it has shaped my style. And it, and I think having these mentors that were men actually helped me a lot because they gave me a perspective of how they work that I wouldn't have necessarily learned on my own. Neil, would you like to add anything to that? It's similar to Tina. I don't think that I spend a lot of time thinking about who I'm working with from a male-female perspective, but certainly It's funny when I look back, the majority of my career has been shaped by strong women. And Tina and I work in an industry that is pretty heavily male dominated and a little more, I would say, traditional, almost antiquated at this point, because we work in a space where there are a lot of men who still scribe to that philosophy. At the end of the day, production and capability is genderless. It's without race. It's without none of the None of it matters when it comes to how you work and how you operate. And in fact, the reverse is true. Diverse perspectives, Tina's perspective working as a woman in this industry, my perspective working as an openly gay man in this industry has shaped the way that we lead. And it's a, I think it's a a perspective that is important because we're coming at it and we're able to solve problems from different viewpoints. And then the rest of it, honestly, there's a lot of talk around it, but it really shouldn't matter. And it's our job to dismantle this as we move forward um, and look at things from a gender blind and race blind and background blind perspective, because some of the most successful organizations, and many studies have shown this, have a significant diversity of thought, which comes from a diversity of worldview. And so that is, I think that's critical to being successful in this day and age. Thank you. I think that's so meaningful, Neil, what you shared, that these are really genderless skills or abilities and very human, I would say very human abilities. And and Tina, again, I think you mentioned something wonderful that like those diverse perspectives can confront us in the short term, but they can also be very necessary for our growth in the long term. And many of our growth moments are our unconscious biases being challenged by a different perspective. And that could be through gender, but that could be through any other different point of view. And before before we wrap this up, Tina, you mentioned about growth earlier. And Neil, you spoke about marketing and sales. Can you just elaborate, in, especially in today's economy and the change circumstances post-COVID, how do you see we can like lead or we can lead our marketing and sales efforts with empathy? 
because there is the old school model of just shouting harder or louder uh, from the top. And I think there is also a very more distinct hate towards marketing or sales now for the consume from the consumer's end, right? So given that, how can we be empathetic to that perspective? And then how can actually leaders be responsible to not just grow and especially to grow during times of recessions or during hard times? We talk a little bit about it in the book from a marketing perspective. If you think about the the most successful ad campaigns over the years, and everybody's going to have an individual, their individual perspective, depending on geographically where they were and what age they are, what they grew up with. But the commercials that stick in your head, the the advertisements that stick in your head tend to be ones that pulled on some kind of an emotional string, or they pulled on a need that you had. And what a lot of marketing seems to be these days and a lot of sales seems to be, as you said, is like being louder, shouting more, getting more email content out, more more ad content online. And the reality is that 90% of people don't pay any attention to untargeted ads, right? They're just background noise and people just don't pay attention to those products. The way to be successful these days is to understand your customer. And that comes from empathy, understanding what their challenges are, what their needs are, and most importantly, how you can solve a problem, how your product or your service can solve a problem that a person has. Then you build your ad campaign around that. Tina and I in the book talk about empathy mapping, which is it's a tool that user experience software engineers use where they gather information from their end users to help build, you know, essentially a system that's more user-friendly and intuitive. You can do the same thing with marketing campaigns. Go out, talk to your customers in those sales calls, find out what people are looking for, and then use that information holistically across the organization to build a campaign and to sell from a place of knowledge of your customer that comes from that interpersonal connection that's built with empathy. Yeah, thank you for adding that. Dina, would you like to share an example or anything else to add upon that? I would like to just add a little bit about leadership and remote work. Because now we're, we have people that, that work that you're only seeing on camera. And it is a different type of leadership. And in my opinion, it's a little bit harder. You have to be able to communicate better. You're not just walking around saying hi to, to people. There's a little more deliberate leadership and communication that you have to have with the remote work. And that empathy um, is even more important because it's so easy to not listen and to not build that trust in your team when they're remote because you don't have that daily face-to-face, you're not eating lunch with them. There's, there, there's just a little bit more work that you have to have. And I, some of, I hear all these things about work, remote work, yes, remote work, no. And, but in fact, it take, it's harder to be an effective leader with remote work. And I believe that's why there's a lot of managers that don't want their employees remote because it takes more deliberation and in my opinion, empathy in order to be an effective leader for remote people. So I just wanted to throw that in at the end. Yeah. Neil, would you like to add anything else to the remote work? Like how are you dealing with that within the organization? 
Yeah, so we, our organization is still hybrid. We're in a couple of days a week. And to Tina's point, it does become more difficult. We have some folks who are fully virtual now who moved during COVID. And it takes effort to the, as Tina mentioned, having lunch with people, the casualness of being in an office, the conversations that happen, you have to make an effort to do that with your teams when they're virtual. It is absolutely possible. It is certainly a different style, but if bringing it back to empathy, right? If you understand what your team needs and you understand how to apply that flexibility and hold people accountable and are willing to have those tough conversations, but from a place of understanding where that person is and what they need, you can very successfully run a virtual organization. It just takes a little bit more effort and a little bit more empathy. Thank you for adding that. And before we end, is there anything else that you would like to add that you would like the listeners to know or be aware about? No, I think if any of this is of interest to any of your listeners, the book certainly goes into more detail and Tina and I are pretty out and active and happy to engage. And no, just thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you both. Yeah, thank Neil you for and... having us. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure listening, right, to, to not just the theory or the ideas about empathy, but also listening to how you have practiced and continue to practice it in your daily life. And as you very rightly pointed out, it's not all easy stuff, right? It's courageous stuff. So I want to applaud that to, to write a book about that and to actually lead from the forefront, right? Because that's the real juice. You are leading and growing an organization and then writing a book about that rather than simply throwing a book in the open. So thank you for coming up. Thank you for the book. Thank you for the journey that my, you might have gone through and that you'll continue to grow through as you grow and evolve as leaders. And I think to anybody who is listening, I want to see this as an example of what is possible. And I will make sure to include the link to the book as it is available uh, in the show notes so that anybody who wants to go and check out Tina and Neil's work in more detail, they can do. Thank you. Thank you. And that wraps up another inspiring episode of the Visionary Voices series on the Choosing Leadership podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation and find value in this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback helps us reach more people and share these transformative insights with a wider audience. Remember, leadership is about continuous practice and not just about intellectual knowledge. And we love hearing from all of you so feel free to reach out and share your thoughts, questions, and takeaways. Thank you for listening to Choosing Leadership. Always remember that you are enough, you are loved, and you matter. This is Sumit, and until the next time, keep choosing leadership.